To what extent is the EU dependent on what China and the US do? And to what extent can it be the shaper of its own trade destiny? What role will trade play in the global economy of the future? Can the multilateral rules-based trading system survive? Or will nationalism and protectionism lead to a world of trade barriers and trading blocks? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2020, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to this podcast conversation about Europe's response to COVID-19 and the pandemic's impact on the EU trade agenda. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute, and I'm honored to be hosting this podcast uh, for the AIG Global Trade Series 2020. And I'm joined today by two expert speakers on the topic. On the one hand, we have Elvire Fabry. Elvire is a senior research fellow at the Jacques Delors Institute in Paris, and she works on trade policy and the EU in the context of globalization. And secondly, we have Ignacio Garcia Bercero. Ignacio is a director at DG Trade at the European Commission, a former negotiator in the EU-US trade talks, and currently an EU fellow at Oxford University, where he likes to say he's thinking about how to save the global trade system. A very warm welcome to you both. A lot has been said already about how Europe has responded to COVID-19, particularly in the context of some of the trade restrictions that have been put in place and uh, some of the challenges that Europe, like other economies, has faced in terms of dealing with this slump in global trade and getting access to um, urgent and critical medical equipment. Um, But what we hope to do today is to dive a little bit deeper and to look at the longer term trends of how COVID-19 is impacting the European trade agenda and Europe's approach to global trade. Now let's get right started. It seems, Ignacio and Elvire, it seems as if we have to talk about the world before COVID-19 and the world after COVID-19. And from a trade perspective, what do you think was was most striking about the impact of the pandemic and the EU's response to it from a trade perspective. Elvire, perhaps you first. Okay, let's start. Um, well, there are many striking elements, of course, in this uh, with this unprecedented uh, crisis, the pandemic and the recession going just starting. Um, I think the most striking element is the proportion that some phenomenon, uh, various phenomenon, has uh, has taken through the through the crisis, and I I'm tempted to focus on five elements in the short term. Um, the first thing is that I think we have never expected to have a precaution precautionary uh, approach to trade to be so widely shared uh, worldwide uh, between uh, so many countries uh, to the point that lockdown decisions have been replicated from east to west and ending in an unprecedented great lockdown and putting an halt on globalization. 
And I think there was nothing less obvious just at the beginning of the year. Uh, and it, was, uh, it has been even decided in countries that were often exposed to frequent uh, epidemic risks and to which which are faced to high rates of mortality and they have themselves locked down their, their citizens it says something about a new political economy of trade and we i think we'll have uh, time to come back uh, on that the the second element which was very striking is uh, how l- l- the very poor knowledge that companies have on their supply chain and as well of course, on the, the vulnerabilities of their supply chain. They seem to lack uh, a good overview of the whole supply chain. They still have little capacity of traceability inventories, uh, providing them the, uh, the good overview that allows them to prevent some, some risk of, uh, uh, of uh, distortions in their supply chain. The third element is the lack of coordination that was obvious at the the international level, Uh, the lack of response to manage the crisis, coming uh, lack of response coming from the multilateral level, the regional institution as well. They have been quite efficient in data collecting, monitoring and and sharing, uh, helping countries to share all the data, and it was very uh, it was key to address the the, the first stage of the, the, the pandemic. Uh, and I think they have obviously shown that they were less efficient in crisis management. And a consequence of that is the fourth element, which is uh, the disorder of uh, the, the national reactions uh, of the different decisions that have been taken at the national level and even at the local level, and incentivizing more competition between uh, between the states and provoking some shortages of materials supply and incre- amplifying, increasing the asymmetry of uh, the economic shock between the uh, countries. And the fifth element concerns the state aids. Uh, fifth striking element is how quickly we have departed from market economy orthodoxy on, on, on that issue. Uh, it's striking to see how quickly decades of market economy have been shaped by uh, a massive wave of uh, subsidies worldwide. Of course, th- those uh, stimulus packages that are put on the table everywhere worldwide are most needed and most legitimated. But we already anticipate that this will create some uh, strong imbalances in, in, in global trade. Uh, so now the question is, is this a parenthesis or is it a change of uh, paradigm? Uh, I, I would tend to think this is not a parenthesis. But, uh, hold, your, hold your thought. Don't give us the answer yet whether you think that this is a sea change. I, I want to bring in Ignacio and I, I want to pause on one of the elements that you mentioned, Elvir, which is this element of crisis management. Um, and I, I, um, I'd like, Ignacio, you, you know um, better than anyone uh, how DG trade functions and what the European Commission may or may not have been in considering over the past three months. But what, what has been most striking to you in terms of how the EU has addressed the crisis from a trade perspective, some of the steps that it's taken, some of the um, 
vulnerabilities that it has tried to address in terms of uh, its dependence relationship, uh, but also the the export measures that it that it took. What is, what has surprised you over the past uh, couple of of weeks or months? Uh, yes, thank you very much, Ven. Uh, now, when it comes to the short term response, I don't think uh, I would say the reaction has been very surprising. There was a huge uh, problem of a scarcity of certain uh, type uh, of medical products. There was uncoordinated uh, reactions uh, by the member states uh, that risk uh, putting in question the very principles of the single market. And in those circumstances, I think there was a need for a short-term trade response. Try to make it as proportionate as possible and not keep it any longer than necessary. So I don't think that that issue per se is uh, so unexpected. Uh, Trade policy is an exclusive competence. Uh, We have the capacity to react uh, uh, quickly. It is much more difficult uh, to deal uh, with some of the underlying problems uh, like uh, a scarcity of uh, reserve uh, stocks. But uh, what I found more striking is something which is a little bit more political. It is the debate that you're having in Europe, but not only in Europe, you're having it in the United States, you're having it in Africa, you're having it a little bit everywhere about the need to look again and reconsider the global value chains. Now, I'm with the calls for reshoring. Now, that is a new element. In my view, it is the consequence of three things that go together, although they are not necessarily uh, the same problem. One is this feeling of vulnerability, which is the logical consequence when you find that there is a scarcity of medical supplies. Secondly, there is this concern uh, about overdependence uh, from uh, China. And finally, there's the whole debate uh, about uh, climate uh, and to what extent uh, shorter and more localized uh, value chains contribute uh, towards uh, climate objectives. I think when you put all those elements together, you inevitably have a political debate that I think uh, we need to be conscious uh, uh, about. Now, uh, how far this is going to go? My own impression is that uh, reshoring is unlikely to go very far. And that uh, for three reasons. One is that there are some basic laws of economics. That is to say, uh, it's very difficult to imagine that you can completely localize uh, value chains. There's always going to be certain components of the value chain for you would need to rely on low-cost suppliers. And unless you were going to apply permanent protection against imports, uh, this is not going to work. Secondly, because Europe inevitably is a continent which is very highly dependent uh, of exports. And if we were going to go in a protectionist react, uh, direction, this would have major impacts uh, on the European uh, economy. So I think there's going to be an impact, but the impact is going to be much more targeted. It's going to imply a combination of different actions. For some cases, it may be an issue of uh, building up strategic stockpiles. In some sectors, it may be a question of subsidies. 
in some questions it may be of measures to internalize uh, environmental costs. So there's going to be certainly more active industrial policies, as I think uh, LB has also pointed out. But I don't think uh, that I would imagine that uh, the European Union would go and move in a direction that systematically looks into reshoring uh, into local into local production. There may be more interest uh, on diversification, and I think the debate about diversification, in my view, also opens up interesting avenues. There is the whole question of our trade relations uh, with the neighborhood and with Africa. So I think there's different issues which are going to be looked uh, into. But politically, I think this feeling of vulnerability, this feeling that we cannot just simply rely on global value chains, uh, that there is a need to look uh, much more into the resilience of the value chain, that's something which I think is going to, is going to stay and is going to have an impact on future trade, uh, trade policy. And and Elvire, do you do you agree? I mean, do, to what extent do you think there is a sort of a pre-COVID nineteen trade agenda and a post-COVID nineteen agenda? No, I completely agree on uh, everything what Ines just said. Um, I think it's going to be a sort of um, not so much a before and after, but a sort of gradual uh, transition. I don't know if we have to call it a trade resilience transition in addition to the green and the digital transition that we already have on the agenda. But it's going to be, as Ignacio just mentioned, uh, decoupling uh, is not realistic. Uh, even in in the health sector, uh, we see that we may have the necessity and the capability or the capacity to, uh, uh, to, to, to restore some more um, uh, autonomic produ uh, production um, in, in the EU, and uh, we see, and we see that uh, the the interest is more to to uh, to niche or to to shorten some supply chains or even some part of the supply chain because we're talking about the uh, usually about uh, very generally about supply chain. But sometimes the vulnerabilities are only on some parts of the supply chain. And I think it's going to be a mix of all different measures. The ones that uh, uh, Ignacio just, just mentioned about the stocks, moving, rebalancing between just-in-time and the just-in-case, so increasing some stocks. But of, obviously, stocks cannot be... Uh, cannot be uh, uh, anticipated for uh, all sectors and at all levels of the supply chain. Um, and uh, uh, I, I think maybe there's an additional issue, which is uh, who will lead this transition. And we probably have to anticipate what could be for the moment, a sort of decoupling between the political discourse uh, calling uh, in some part of this uh, spectrum of the, the political spectrum, uh, calling for uh, for reshoring and creating strong expectations on the citizen side, on the consumer side, because they they would expect some positive impact in reshoring and increasing some uh, job opportunities uh, in the country, and a more business pragmatic approach, and. I think it's important, first of all, to have business driving this trade resilience transition because uh, we have to avoid the political leaders in the driving seat with the temptation to 
to move back to some form of protectionism, which could also increase some nationalism and move trade management in a more sensitive geopolitical area. I think an important thing is to to preserve the geoeconomic uh, dimension of trade and try to avoid to make it slip in uh, some more geopolitical waters. And so I think it is important at the moment to have a strong mobilization of stakeholders framing the whole debate about this increasing need for resilience in supply chains. Right. And and, and let's look a little bit at one of the points that um, Ignacio uh, put on the table, which is that fundamentally there is a new political debate in response to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, which is these calls for reshoring. If you look at, for instance, the debate in the United States, we have senior U.S. officials saying that COVID-19 is an opportunity, an opportunity to deliver on this ambition of decoupling from China. Um, In China, there is a debate about decoupling from U.S. and European technology. And Europe, it seems, is stuck somewhere in the middle. And what I hear from both of you is that... um, you know, the EU is the sensible player in this regard, that uh, we um, shouldn't be tempted by these uh, discussions about um, about uh, reshoring and that stockpiles can only get you so far and that because of our dependence on export, Europe can't go down that route of, of being um, sort of protectionist in, 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 in terms of its response. If we now look at the broader uh, global trade agenda, before COVID-19, we were having a conversation about the future of trade multilateralism. We were having a discussion about US China, the US-China trade war. We were having a discussion about the EU being the champion of trade multilateralism. What is left of that agenda? Or perhaps phrased more positively, how can the EU deliver on that ambition to move trade multilateralism forward in this post-pandemic context, um, Ignacio. Uh, well, that's a great uh, that's a great question. To, let me start by saying that I think that the issues that were previously in the trade agenda of the EU are con- going to continue to be there, but that the focus is inevitably going to shift. Uh, because of the new reality that has been created by COVID. And I think that we need to be thinking about different scenarios because there are two key variables. One is going to be the depth of the economic impact of COVID, how it's going to impact Europe, but also how it's going to impact our neighbors and impact other trading partners. But the second, and probably even more decisive, is going to be how the US and China politically are going to choose to manage their conflict. And in that connection, I see three scenarios, and I think that the European Union would need to be prepared for all three scenarios. One scenario is what I would call an intensification of the current US-China conflict, leading to decoupling of the two economies, A second scenario is a little bit less extreme because the US and China will still try to manage bilaterally their relationships to avoid a major flare up. 
but they will engage in competition to seek to develop exclusionary trade alliances. And the third scenario is the one in which WTO reform goes up in the political agenda and becomes the way of trying to channel in a more constructive direction the US-China conflict. Now, it is clear, I think, that from the European Union perspective, the third scenario is the one to be preferred. And I think that strategically, we need to put forward a vision about how this scenario should work. But we need to be prepared uh, for the other scenarios. We need to engage in what I think the Chinese Communist Party course, bottom line thinking. What if the world that we are facing is a world of increased uh, uh, conflict between China and the US and uh, decoupling? And that's why I think that even in that scenario, we need to rethink uh, a little bit uh, our uh, trade uh, policy. I mean, I don't know, Ren, where you want me to go now or read into that or where you prefer to open up a little bit uh, the debate. But my, my main message is that the center of our policy should continue to be, from my personal point of view, WTO reform. But we need to be conscious that WTO reform may not move very fast unless there is a willingness also by the US and China to engage in that uh, direction. And that means that we need to also be ready to that kind of scenario and to develop the tools that enhance our resilience in what is likely to be a, quite a conflictual uh, trade policy environment. Right. Well, from your three scenarios, obviously the, the last one, WTO reform moving up the international agenda, is the one most preferred from an EU perspective. But what do you do if you end up in scenario one or two, so in the decoupling scenario or in the exclusionary trade alliances, basically the fragmentation of um, of a global trading system, what 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 kind of instruments does the EU have at its disposal, rather than simply as it is doing these days, trying to get WTO reform up the agenda? What what alternative instruments does the EU have available? to promote its interests and protect its trade interests in scenario one and two? I think we should basically do four things. The first, we should maintain engagement in the WTO. That continues to be our fundamental long-term interest. So we should maintain engagement and try to do as much as can be done on a prudential setting, even if on certain issues, we may not be able to have the US on board, even if on certain issues we may not be able to have the Chinese on board, and even if on certain issues we may not be able to have either the US or China on board. There are things that we should continue to try to promote in the context of the WTO and develop alliances with like-minded countries, try to open a dialogue with Africa. We should not abandon the WTO as a forum in which we should engage even in the worst-case scenario. Secondly, it is clear that in that context, the bilateral agenda is critical. We should be able to deliver on our ongoing bilateral negotiations. We should perhaps consider others, although I would say that perhaps our priority should be how we can deepen our trade and investment relationship with both the neighborhood 
and Africa, which is linked to the concept which I mentioned to you before about diversification of value chains. I think bilaterally, we should certainly deliver what we have started, but we should really look further about how we can have a stronger engagement with our neighboring countries. I think we should be active on regulatory cooperation. I think it's a little bit complacent to say just because of the Brussels effect, we can just sit down and the country will follow our regulatory lead. I think we need to be engaged in a much more active regulatory cooperation policies, particularly on issues relating to digital and on issues relating to the climate transition. And finally, I think that we need to be prepared for potential turbulences. We need to have the trade policy instruments to defend our interests. We should do it in a WTO-compatible manner. I think it would be profoundly responsible to say because dispute settlement is not fully functioning, we should not care anymore about WTO. We should maintain respect for WTO rules, but there's quite a few things that you can do uh, while staying uh, within the framework of WTO rules. And as you are aware, there's a lot of discussion going on about uh, developing trade policy instruments, reciprocity in public procurement, a new trade policy instruments to deal with the impact of subsidies in the single market, perhaps a strengthening of investment screening. So there are different areas in which we would also need to look into how to ensure that we can defend our interests in case that this is actually necessary. But I would say even in that scenario, which is not the preferred one, we should not basically give up on trying to do as much as we can within the framework of the WTO. Great. And, and but with that in mind, what we're actually seeing, what you're describing is a a continuation of the discussions we were having before the pandemic broke out, but that the pandemic actually works as a catalyst and has brought a number of these questions that we were already struggling with in, say, late 2019, um, brought them more pronounced to uh, to the fore. I mean, uh, Elvira, how do you how do you see this? And do you th and do you think that the EU's um, instruments, its toolbox, is um, appropriate? for the task at hand? Well, I agree to the idea of an, uh, an amplification of the, the rising conflicts between uh, the US and China, and that the EU was already preparing itself for this amplification uh, of the conflict, intensification of the conflict. And when we look back to the measures that were already uh, prepared and even adopted, uh, we see a sort of mix of offensive and defensive approach. And maybe the, on the offensive side, the initiative taken to put in place that uh, multi-party interim agreement to have the capacity to have a dispute settlement uh, uh, alternative interim mechanism on the multilateral level was an interesting initiative. And we see that uh, we have moved from 16 countries to 21 countries and little by little a more meaningful critical mass of countries supporting that initiative. And that 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 is key. Um, and on the other side, uh, the initiatives were already taken to have a more defensive approach with the preparation of the so-called bazooka in instrument, allowing to respond to more new uh, new new uh, aggression uh, that will of course uh, will increase in a, in a more conflicting uh, scenario. 
Um, and, and, and I think uh, there's a sort of new balance that has been um, that has been found by the, the European Commission. We remember the way last year China was addressed as a systemic rival, and the the, the initiative taken on uh, FDI screening. It shows the willingness on the European side to be prepared for a more tough uh, confrontation. Um, maybe I would add that there's something, um, in addition, interesting that is happening at the moment, which is really a sort of a strong mobilization in the defense of the single market. When, when you look at the measures that have been adopted just at the beginning of the pandemic regarding state aids, regarding the possibility to preserve the circulation of um, goods, uh, good flows through the single market to, to, to preserve the free movement of, uh, of goods in the single market. That is obviously most needed in any of the potential scenarios for the future. And I tend to think that Europeans are looking at the single market much more as their strategic backyard for the, for the business and that there may be a need at the cross of trade policy and internal market policies, a need for more initiative to foster that strength of the single market. And I think we can think more precisely about the need for more cohesion between member states in the way they are addressing a partner like China, uh, that they would still there's still a long way to have stronger cohesion, but that would be uh, most needed, and that would call for new initiatives to to be taken on, in that direction. And and Elvira, do you do you also see that take place in the context of a broader discussion about European strategic autonomy? Um, well, yes. You, well, it says precisely when, when we, we're talking about strategic autonomy, I think there's a, the third word missing, which is the open strategic autonomy, which is now the concept put forward uh, by, by the European Commission. And it says something about the need to, to have a more strategic overview and re-engineering of the, the resilience of supply chains. And increase more autonomous capacity in the EU, investing in industrial policy, uh, uh, notably, uh, but also advocating for open trade. And uh, and that is the more uh, offensive leg of the, the European trade policy, uh, addressing the reform of WTO and the defense of multilateral rules. And uh, that's, uh, I, I think on that side, uh, the, the Europeans will continue to championship uh, more, I mean, increasing rules at the multilateral level. I'm speaking with Elvira Fabri and Ignacio Garcia Barcero. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the Franco-Dutch non-paper on trade and sustainability and how to make the domestic case for trade. This series of podcasts is brought to you by AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series.
We're back from our break, and I'm here with Alvir Fabri and Ignacio Garcia Bercero. Can I um, come back to one of the points that you mentioned, uh, Elvir, just at the end, which is the offensive element of EU trade policy? And if we look at some of the instruments that are now being developed, um, a significant amount of attention has been spent on this non-paper, which was published by um, uh, France and the Netherlands in terms of leveraging Europe's market power to deliver on a number of um, ulterior, alternative objectives, particularly in the context of sustainability. Um, The non-paper effectively says that market access to the EU should only be granted if a number of Uh, sustainability norms are met by the exporting party. We have a discussion about using market access uh, to the EU as a lever to address uh, or reach climate uh, objectives. The carbon border adjustment uh, comes to mind. Um, And I I wonder, uh, thinking back to Ignacio's three scenarios and this willingness to also be prepared for the eventuality that things don't go completely um, the way we want it and that we potentially end up in a more fractious global trade environment, what these instruments that are now under development by the commission um, point to. And if you want to be cynical, you could make the argument that uh, if um, if the EU finds itself in a in a global trade environment where um, unilateral trade restrictive policies are being pursued by the United States or by China, that it would be silly for Europe not to follow suit to protect its interests. But that then points to what I would like to call sort of small p protectionism. So how how does Europe square that dilemma that on the one hand it wants to be the champion for open, rules-based trade multilateralism. And on the other hand, um, it needs to protect its interests. It needs to have trade instruments to address uh, 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 trade distortions. And it wants to use the leverage of its own market to, to, to achieve its broader foreign policy goals, whether that's on climate or sustainability. Um, Ignacio, how do you, how do you see that dilemma? Uh, well, I think one thing that, in my view, is very important is that we do not uh, uh, confuse commitment to sustainability, which is a multilateral value, with a small p protectionism. Now, in my view, it's very clear that, that this commission hasn't uh, first priority, which is to deliver the, on the Green Deal that the climate transition is probably also the top priority of the international community, and that trade policy does not exist in a vacuum. You cannot expect public support for open trade policies without ensuring that there is consistency with the climate transition. I mean, I don't see that as being an external conditionality which is imposed on trade policy, but rather ensuring that all European Union policies are consistent with certain global objectives. A border carbon measure is a measure that, if it is properly designed, 
should not be protectionist. And I think it's critical that no matter what is the situation about the WTO, we stick to the idea that we would only introduce a measure which is perfectly defendable in terms of WTO, of WTO uh, consistency. Now, apart from climate, the other element of debate has to do with human rights, uh, labor rights, how to ensure sustainability of value chains. And again, these are areas in which I think the European Union should stick to defending international values, international standards, not to enter into a dynamic we just simply want to use our market power to, to get others to do what uh, we are doing. That's why I also think that this debate about sustainability is something that we need to introduce into the discussions about WTO reform. I mean, WTO reform is not only about level playing field with China, it is also about how to ensure that WTO is consistent with the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals. And that means that we should be open to have a discussion on all those issues multilaterally. I think it's important that, for instance, before we introduce any border carbon measure, we have had enough time to discuss it and to consult also with external stakeholders to see what is the point of view of our key trading partners. Now, all of those issues, I believe, have to be part of a policy by the European Union to, to engage internationally, to defend, to defend its values. But I mean, it's not a new element. Sustainability has been a component of trade policy, at least for the last 10 or 15 years. We have had sustainable development chapters in our trade agreements since our free trade agreement with Korea, and they were binding. They were always binding. So it is normal that now there's also a bit more of a discussion about how to make sure that those chapters are more are better implemented and that this probably would become one of the priorities for enforcement in the enforcement policy of the European Union. So I think if we play this issue uh, in the right way, I don't think that it is, uh, is in any way something that should lead uh, to protectionism, but it clearly is going to require a, a big effort of discussion uh, with our trading partners. And as I said, again, I think that our interaction in particular with the Africa is going to be key. Mm. And how do you, how do you see that, uh, Elvira? Is, do you think that there is a tension between, um, on the one hand, these... Um, this commitment to uh, WTO rules, uh, rules-based trade, and some of the initiatives that we now see being discussed in the context of, of the EU's new trade trade agenda, the conditionalities, for instance? Uh, well, yes, there's obviously a tension, and that's, what we, that's why we have to take time to... Uh, uh, to put forward the, the good instruments. And I think that's what the Commission is doing precisely. And and when we're talking about the carbon border adjustment uh, instruments, uh, they're taking the time for consultation and to prepare a, a feasible, in, and a, I mean, an instrument that is uh, that can be uh, uh, efficiently implemented. Um I, there's a there's a tension, but there's there's really a, um, I mean it, it's a it's a strategic issue. First of all, because we need to to gain some public support uh, uh, 
trying to resolve, uh, to clarify that, that nexus. And without that public support, um, uh, European trade policy would be, uh, will be weakened uh, at, uh, at the most, at a critical moment. Uh, and um, in addition, I think that um, there's a, the window of um, the window of, of opportunity for to take advantage of the Brussels effect that was mentioned by Ignacio previously about the capacity to promote our regulations, uh, our standards worldwide. Is it maybe we have to keep in mind that it's. Uh, it is based, of course, on the attractiveness, economic attractiveness of the single market, and that uh, it may be quite uh, not a small window of opportunity, but it may not last for for decades. And uh, so it's it's uh, it's um, particularly an interesting moment for us at the moment to be uh, to to have a leadership role in the in that aspect. And uh, the, the third remark, remark that I would add is that uh, we have to find the right balance between mandatory and voluntary measures. And it's not only one instrument that uh, can be put uh, forward, but uh, a whole set of uh, different measures. And I think that's precisely what the, uh, the non-paper coming from the Netherlands and France is trying to uh, to do to uh, a mix of uh, of uh, different measures and trying to uh, to develop the consistency of the different policies that was uh, that Inacio was uh, mentioning. Yeah, and I think I think there's another element to it as well, which which leads me to my final question I want to pose to you, which is that uh, particularly looking at the Franco-Dutch non-paper. Um, the discussion we've had so far focuses a lot on sort of external developments, what's happening in the international landscape. But both um, Elvira and Ignacio, both of you have, have addressed in passing this question of domestic support for trade. And in my mind, when I read the Franco-Dutch paper um, on trade and sustainability, I see very much the echoes of um, the domestic political debates we're seeing in the Netherlands and in France, where there is actually greater need for explaining the case or making the case for trade to domestic audiences that are increasingly skeptical, that think that, um, say, uh, protecting the climate and global trade are at two ends of a spectrum that they can't go together, that um, uh, this, this perception in the domestic political context that trade goes at the expense of sustainability. So from my point of view, I, I, I read a paper like this and I, I see um, very much some of the uh, dilemmas that, that politicians and the governments are struggling with to make the case for trade. And I, I actually see that this is going to shape EU trade policy because European countries are having to find it more and more difficult to bring skeptical audiences on board. So the, the question I want to put to you, and perhaps Elvira, you can go first to also explain a little bit about the conversation in France, is um, I mean, how, how to make that future case for trade. And is, is a Franco-Dutch non-paper like this, is that sufficient? Or should Europe... Um, up the ante when it comes to bringing 
uh, increasingly skeptical audiences uh, on board. Uh, I mean, just to give one other example from my vantage point in the Netherlands, the Netherlands is typically seen to be a an open, free-trading nation which supports global rules-based trade, but it has found it very difficult to get Parliament to ratify um, the EU's free trade agreement with Canada. And there are real question marks whether the Netherlands, again, this symbol of free trade, if you want to put it like that, um, whether it will support the EU's free trade agreement with Mercosur. If that's the case for the Netherlands, I mean, what 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 does that tell us about other European countries and how they're approaching uh, this issue? Elvira? Well, you're completely right. There's no coincidence that this uh, bilateral initiative comes from the Netherlands and France, precisely. We're sharing the same uh, the same issue. Um, and I think that explains also why Emmanuel Macron has been so vocal on trade issue and has been uh, there has been many initiatives coming recently from France on on the on the trade side uh, let's think about uh, the screening mechanism that was uh, proposed by Germany France and Italy uh, that's the investment the, screening mechanism right yes exactly yep. on the um, on FDI um it was uh, i i think emmanuel macron has tried to put forward a new narrative which is not an easy one but trying to advocate for to for a european trade policy that protects without protectionism and that is it's necessary to really to to build a narrative on some different pillars one of them is sustainability as you uh, as you just mentioned, and it's an it's an a key one. Um, I think there's one that we'll need to anticipate much more actively, and w- which will be maybe much more common to many member states in the EU. And this regards the digital economy regulation, um, because the other strong criticism that is addressed to uh, international trade policy is uh, the the inequalities in the redistribution of the benefits of the uh, that are brought by this most needed uh, trade uh, trade policy uh, and we can anticipate that on the digital side at the same time the development of digital economy may be a very strong booster for uh, in a, in the recovery phase, but that there's uh, new imbalances that can be brought also uh, in between uh, the manufacturers uh, manufacturing sector and the digital sector and the redistribution of uh, of the benefits that will need to be very well anticipated. And uh, uh, I think I mean. I'm 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 just turning towards the future and to see what what are the 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 new questions that we will need to address because I think sustainability won't uh, won't resolve. I mean, if we find some more compatibility between trade and sustainability, it won't resolve all the the criticism that are raised by the the, the, the citizens, and uh, precisely in France. Uh, that debate has uh, 
ha has grown and maybe uh, will will uh, uh, will turn out to be more acute during the recovery phase. Yeah, and what you're saying is that the sustainability agenda is not going to be sufficient to bring popular support on board, and that we need to look at how digitalization, also in the context of the epidemic, is 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 reshaping that that relationship between. Um, Say our our developed economies and um, and and global trade, um, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean that's that's fascinating because it's a topic that really hasn't been explored. I mean, we think of digitalization as offshoring of 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 manufacturing jobs, and it's more and more also going to impact services. Um, I also like very much sort of your one-liner about uh, Emmanuel Macron's approach to protect without protectionism. Um, Ignacio, the, the the final word is for you. Uh, you you know the ins and outs of DG Trade and the European Commission. How how is this debate regarding popular support in European member states for trade? How does that percolate into? the corridors of power in Brussels. I mean, well, how we oftentimes talk about the, um, the distance between the Brussels bureaucracy and, and the average citizen. Um, and when it comes to trade policy and moving trade policy forward, it seems to me that this is one of the premier topics where we should at least strive to, to reduce that, dis that gap as much as possible. Um, and from your experience, What is that interchange, again, between the, the domestic political debates about trade and bringing skeptical audiences on board and, and what uh, the machinery of DG Trade does and produces? Uh, no, thank you, Rem. And actually, let me start by saying something which maybe I should have said uh, in the beginning. I have been at least one year away from the corridors of power So I'm really stopping <laughs> on a personal, on a personal uh, capacity. Of course. Uh, and before the addressing your question, let me comment on something which Herbie has said, uh, on which I agree, but which I don't think is necessarily separate from the sustainability agenda. I mean, for me, sustainability is not only about protection of the environment. Sustainability is also about social justice. So, so, so sustainability is also about ensuring that the benefits of trade openness are broadly shared. So if you want to talk about the integration of sustainability into trade policy, you also need to look into those elements. And that's why the point which I made before about trade policy not being the, in a vacuum does not relate only to the implementation of the Paris Agreement. That's obviously one of the key elements. It also relates to the whole discussion about how to ensure that there is a fair taxation in the digital economy. I think, in my view, all of these issues, reforming the rules of trade, ensuring an effective implementation of the Paris Agreement, seeking an agreement within the context of the OECD on a more fair system of corporate taxation, are all issues which have to be seen as being together part of an effort by the EU to influence the rules under which uh, globalization is uh, conducted. And I think this has to be part, in my view, of the communication that we do vis-a-vis -vis our uh, public uh, opinions. Now, on the issue about how to ensure that uh, we keep uh, uh, our populations on board, now, I can tell you about uh, my experience as a TTIP chief negotiator. Right? 
I think I spent uh, almost. Wait, wait was TTIP was TTIP controversial? I don't know. I think there was a little bit of a discussion here and there in a few yeah. countries, yes. <laughs> but the point which I was trying to make is that I think more of my time was actually dedicated to go to different member states, to have discussions with civil society, to explain what we were actually doing in the negotiations, than to actually negotiate with the United States. And I think it's unavoidable that as you get into a situation in which the trade agreements have become more controversial, that they are actually very much more at the center of political debate in our member states, that you need to be sure that all these discussions happen early on and not just at the time when the parliament has to give his assent uh, to to a trade agreement. So I think this policy of uh, continuous uh, engagement and uh, transparency that we started uh, with TTIP and that we have continued, I think it is of critical importance. Although at the end of the day, it cannot just simply be a matter for the Commission. It has to be also fundamentally a responsibility of the national authorities of the um, of the member states. Now, I don't know what would happen in the Netherlands. Obviously, that's going to be an interesting uh, political uh, uh, debate. It is clear, however, that uh, mixity, quite frankly, is very problematic when it comes to when it comes to to trade uh, trade policy. I will mm. just leave it at that. <laughs> Can I just add something? Absolutely, Alvia. On the transparency issue, mm. I, I I think it's a it's a key issue and it's a two-level requirement uh, as much uh, within the EU and on the global stage. Uh, more than ever, we, we the issue about trade is to rebuild trust not between public opinion and and uh, the leaders and the European Commission and uh, at the level of the WTO and transparency will be more than ever required yeah. and this would require in the first stage to take some strong initiatives uh, um, uh, on the international level because we see precisely that with the, all those state support uh, prompting, uh, which could end in a sort of free festival of uh, state aid and strong distortions in potentially in, in global trade, uh, transparency and efforts of notification. And we know that it's, it has been a very tricky issue and uh, that uh, the EU itself has tried to address in the trilateral initiative with the US and Japan on uh, industrial subsidies. Uh, but it has, they, 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 we have really to address that issue very quickly before uh, we see those initiatives uh, uh, intensifying some frictions and increasing distrust in the um, in global trade. No, absolutely true. And um, I mean, just picking up on one of the things that Ignacio mentioned, um, which I also saw up close in the context of the TTIP negotiations, is that um, it requires the member states to engage fully on this conversation about the future of the trade agenda. It cannot simply be the commission and the trade commissioner who is responsible for making the case in favor of global rules-based trade and innovations in the trade sphere. Um, and with an eye to the trade policy review, which the European Commission is going to launch, you would hope that... Um, the uh, a number of the governments which are 
finding that they are confronting sort of audiences that have real criti- critical questions and parliaments being increasingly critical about the direction of trade policy that they um, take the responsibility to engage with their uh, their citizenry about um, the benefits and virtues of uh, of trade also in this new post covid context um any any final thoughts from uh, from either of you ignacio or elvir no not really so perhaps to say that uh, we have most of the time discussed uh, scenarios two of three mm-hmm. i still hope uh, that we will be able to position ourselves in the first scenario which is the scenario of wto yes. of wto reform I mean, I know that you are going to have a separate podcast where that issue is going to, to be to be discussed. But in my view, that should continue to be the central scenario on which the European Union should position itself and hopefully persuade the United States, because I think that nothing is going to happen without close transatlantic cooperation on the WTO reform agenda, and hopefully persuade the United States that it is also in its interest to work towards tackling the challenges of China in a multilateral in a multilateral setting. Now, this is a topic which could really take us very long. I have written a very long paper on that issue, but I just wanted to to mention that uh, although we need to be prepared for less favorable scenarios, I still think that we should have as a central scenario one which is sent focus on WTO reform. So a final question to you, Elvir, which is we now have the European Commission's trade policy review, which um, contains broad-based consultations to get input from civil society, from uh, national member states regarding the, the future direction of trade policy. What do, you, what do you expect from this? Well, first of all, I think this um, trade policy review comes very timely because we need to put, for, uh, to put together uh, our analysis and thoughts on this trade resilience transition and uh, it will contribute to, uh, to develop a new narrative uh, coming from the EU, which will be addressed to the public opinions in the EU, but with, which only uh, also concerns the, our trade partners. And we definitely need to be more vocal on the international scene, to be heard um, from our trade partners and to, um, to put forward what you called previously REM, the sort of third way in between the US and China, which would be, uh, could be attractive for like-minded partners wanting to defend more regulation at the multilateral level. Yeah, and I think to your point, the question in my mind for the EU, also in the context of the trade policy review, is to what extent is the EU dependent on what China and the US do? And to what extent can it be the shaper of its own trade destiny? So coming back to Ignacio's three scenarios, how does the EU develop that third way where it isn't forced to follow the American or Chinese very antagonistic approach of tit for tat, 
tariffs and flirting with decoupling and not pursue a small letter P protectionist strategy, but to embrace the international values that it holds high with respect to trade, the norms that it wants to set, the rules that it wants to set, and the standards it can contribute to the global traded system at large. That's that third way that I'm, I'm thinking about. And with that, I would like to thank very much Ignacio Garcia Bercero and Elvira Fabri for spending some time with me today to explore the implications of COVID-19 for the EU's trade policy and gaze a little bit into their crystal ball in terms of how EU trade policy can or should develop in the period ahead. AIG Global Trade Series is an international partnership between AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series.